By way of introduction, um, uh, I uh, grew up in a uh, Christian household uh, and actually on the north end of Elizabeth. So I haven't always lived down in Brighton. I'm an accountant and uh, for over 30 years we went to um, a Baptist church uh, that I'm currently going to a, a City Light Church in Glenelg. So um, if God can save an accountant and a Baptist, then he's really very merciful. So, um, and uh, I'm married uh, to Joe, and we have three daughters, so one of whom's here today, Sarah. Okay, so um, this passage uh, really caught my eye earlier um, last year um, when I was reading through Acts because it... it um, it's a wonderful description of Cornelius, just that little introduction at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, and even before um, Peter arrives to explain the gospel to him, you can see that's not just any old fellow. God has been working on this man and prepared him beforehand, even before Peter arrives. Uh, if we just look at the, the context, um, Cornelius is a, a centurion in the Italian regiment, as we read. Um, in the port of Caesarea. Caesarea is 105 kilometers northwest of Jerusalem. It was the main port of the province of Judea in those times. Uh, it's, it's where Pilate lived. So it was the center of Roman administration for the province. And uh, on that basis, it probably had a few nice Roman villas with sea views of the Mediterranean. So um, as, a, as a centurion, Cornelius, um, coming from the Italian regiment, which was drawn from volunteers from Italy, um, it's likely that Cornelius was an Italian, uh, he certainly wasn't a Jew. And, uh, and, and as you can imagine, a centurion in an occupied territory, um, in, in essentially the town where the Roman governor lives, he's there to keep the peace, to keep the streets clean, He'd have known a little bit about the people who lived in Caesarea, wouldn't he? He would have understood uh, who the drunk and disorderly were. He would have understood who the down and outs and who the hoi polloi were because of his job. Uh, he would have been exposed to those people. Uh, and in verse 2, we read that Cornelius was a devout man and his household feared God. Now, God-fearing Gentiles are explained in the Bible commentaries as those who attended uh, the Jewish synagogue and kept the commandments uh, under the covenant of, of that day and prayed to God regularly. The, the, um, uh, the, the Jews who held to their faith in those days prayed three times a day. Um, and uh, he also, um, in the reading we heard, he gave alms to the Jewish people, which means gave money to the poor, gave to the poor. That's an um, incredible snapshot of, um, of anyone, uh, whether you're a, uh, a mother or a father, um, all of us would want to have a description of he and his household were devout and God-fearing. And what a wonderful description. Because for your household to be God-fearing, it means that you, your children, and in, in this man's case, his servants, and his attendant soldiers, uh, also God-fearing. You might uh, remember that uh, when Cornelius sends two servants and a soldier to Peter to ask him to come and pray, it's, it describes the soldier as a devout soldier. So Cornelius's um, 
headship of that group has obviously had an influence on where they stand and what they believe and how they live, um, which is, says something for the fellow, and this is even before Peter arrives um, to explain the gospel. Uh, keeping in mind that the book of Acts is written by a Jewish writer, um, it's unlikely that a Jewish writer would describe a Gentile as devout and God-fearing in verse 2, unless Cornelius was going to the synagogue and living in accordance with the teachings of the synagogue. Uh, and as we read, praying and giving to the poor, he seems to have been um, living that way. So, um, let's um, look at the significance of Cornelius' um, Cornelius's actions. The two actions were praying regularly and giving to the poor. Um, note in verse 4, the angel who appears before Cornelius um, says, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. So they both seem to be significant actions that God has taken notice of. Now, um, we know, all of us here know, that some of the poor are poor for no fault of their own because of things that have happened to them that they can't control. Then there are others of the poor who might be poor because of bad decisions they've made or things they haven't done. But it doesn't say Cornelius gave generously to those who deserved it. It says he gave to the poor. Now that's significant because in his job he obviously knew who was deserving and who wasn't. You know, he was a centurion keeping the streets clean. He, he knew who the drunken disorderly were, but he gave to the poor. If he had only given to the deserving, what would that say about his understanding of the basis of God's love for him? It would say that he thought he deserved God's love. The problem for us then is that when we, you know, um, we, we were those undeserving poor in God's eyes, weren't we? Because when God revealed himself to each of us, we weren't deserving of it, but we were those undeserving poor. We may as well, in God's eyes, essentially, we were, you know, I'm sure each of us has looked at someone who perhaps they're on drugs or they've caused some calamity in their own life by their foolish actions, and you might think, I might save my efforts to help someone who's more worthy and who's trying to get out of it. You know, why would I love someone who's undeserving? But God loved us when we were undeserving. So um, uh, even if we're not a drug taker, for instance, you know, we've all made bad decisions and we've all failed to do things that we should. So that's where we are in that. Um, yet God sent his only son. But this isn't just about loving the poor, is it? It's about loving each other. It's about being transformed by your faith. Um, Cornelius' household were with him in his God-fearing and devout behaviour. So it's not just the poor he was giving to. He was giving to his children, to his wife, to his servants. Those servants were probably slaves. He was under no legal obligation to be nice to them and often the masters weren't nice to their slaves. But these, peop these slaves are devout. Everyone in his household has been influenced by his godly behaviour. So it's, not, it's, it's far broader than just, oh, I, I'm okay with God because I've been giving to the poor. 
He's, he has a soft heart. He's been loving everyone under in his relationship circle. So to be able to do that, it's not just because he was some kind of superhero or some great guy who had his act together. It's because he understood God's love. And it really helps us to see that you don't have to just read the New Testament to see God's love. If you read the Old Testament, you can see God's grace. And Cornelius obviously had been touched by God's grace. He understood God's love and he had been transformed by it so that he could love. And when you're transformed by your understanding of God's love, then it's not just a works that you have to churn out. You know, I've got to put on a happy face and smile and be nice to people because you're transformed, because you are secure, because you trust that God does love you and that softens you. Might even soften you enough to wash the dishes for your wife or to be kind and spend time with the children instead of watching the cricket. You know, there's all those subtle ways in which we can ignore those around us or take them for granted. Um, but this is, Cornelius is the bannerhead Gentile to receive the gospel. So it's no accident that God has prepared him and set him up for us to see someone receiving the gospel. But that's not just Cornelius, that's us as well. This is the model that we're following. God has given his gospel to all the Gentiles in this room and he has prepared all of us to be transformed by his love, by his grace, by his holiness so that we too can be secure in that and love each other um, uh, as, as we can see that Cornelius does. It's interesting, um, you know, this is the administrative capital of Judea and Cornelius is at least a middle-ranking officer. We don't hear about his magnificent villa with sea views in the Mediterranean or the snazzy chariot that he rides around in. Um, they just they talk about what you read in, in verse 2 because that's the important stuff and that's what really matters. And, and, and I think we, we'd have far more respect for him reading what we do read than to know he had various material um, um, belongings. Now, um, we, if we go back to your primary school years, you probably sat in English classes and did a compare and contrast exercise. So if we do that in Psalm 14 now, uh, just uh, reread it um, uh, to, to, do, to do that. Uh, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now that's us. Um, you, when you read this psalm, you may think, what an awful person. But that's us, unless God reaches out and touches us. It says, they are corrupt, their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there is anyone who understands, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good not even one. Do these evil do doers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord, but they are overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evil doers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. 
when the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Now there's a, a number of direct comparisons to those first few verses of Acts there. Um, when you pray to God, you're seeking God. So when the angel in verse 4 of Acts 10 says, you know, the Lord has heard your prayers and seen your gifts to the poor, he's, the prayer part is about Cornelius' heart is seeking God. He's not just um, caught up in his own uh, inward-looking life or, you know, um, chased for his own glory. Whereas in Psalm 14, in, in verse 2, it says, um, the Lord looks down from heaven to see if there are any who seek God. So the, the mark of an evil person is you're not seeking God. Whereas the mark of one of God's people is that you are seeking God and part of how you're doing that is you're praying. Obviously, you're reading your Bible, you're having fellowship and hearing about God's word. That's part of seeking God, isn't it? So Cornelius was praying regularly and, and God's hearing his prayer and says, this man's seeking God. So that's a direct contrast between us in Psalm 14 and us as God's people. Uh, if you take Cornelius and the, uh, the other people out. And in verse 3, it emphasises what I've just said. It says, they've all turned away, they've all become corrupt. There is no one who does good not even one. So they've turned away from whom? They've turned away from God. They're not seeking him. Now, I don't know if you picked this up, but as I read this, it occurred to me that uh, in verse 4, in Psalm 14, it says, they devour my people as though eating bread. Well, what did we just do? Christ's body was broken for us, and we eat the bread to remind us that he sacrificed himself. And here in Psalm 14, what did we... What do the evil people who turn away from God do? They break other people's bodies like bread. See that? It's a very clear contrast, isn't it? You know, have you broken other people's bodies like bread for your own ends? I'm sure we all have. And that's the description of an evildoer who turns away from God and uses other people, chews them up. And then... Um, you know, he keeps coming back to it. They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. Whereas, um, fortunately, because God has revealed himself to us, we do call on the Lord. We do ask him to help us with our woes and we do seek him. And, and um, it's, it's worth noting um, a third of the Psalms talk about waiting on God. So we may be praying, we may be asking about that thing we can't control, you know, I had a daughter who was in bed for four years and we, the doctors couldn't fix her. She's, she is up on her feet now and, and um, by the grace of God. But we can't solve everything, can we? So we might call on the Lord, but we need to understand that we might have to wait on the Lord as well. And And the encouragement in Psalm 14 is there um, that the evil are overwhelmed with dread for God is present in the company of the righteous. So it's God coming in to rescue us, not ourselves. And he wants us to work hard, to try hard, to try and love each other, to try and seek God. But we can't solve everything, we can't beat everything. 
were waiting on him and calling to God for, for things. But the good news is that God is present. Uh, he sent his spirit to guide us. He's given us his word to guide us. And he's given us fellowship to encourage each other. And God is present among us whenever two or three meet in his name. What a relief when we may not be able to fix whatever it is on our agendas today, when you want it, but God is there and God has a plan and, and God is someone in whom we can trust, uh, someone of integrity and someone of mercy. So, um, and then uh, the final comparison there, um, in verse 6 of Psalm 14, you evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, um, whereas Cornelius, despite being a foreign occupier, he, uh, he gives to the poor um, and, and he, loves, he loves even the undeserving poor, let alone the deserving poor. So there's, there's, it's a really stark contrast. Um, and Psalm 14 is us before we knew God or us if we don't turn to God and seek him. And Cornelius is what we are when we're following God and seeking him. Um, it doesn't mean we win everything or beat everything. You know, we may suffer um, for a long period, but we're God's people and we have him to call on and turn to and, and we have each other uh, with soft hearts, loving each other even when we don't deserve it, uh, just as God loves us when we don't deserve it. So it's a, a wonderful message that we have to look at that and to see how we are transformed by our faith. So it's not a works thing that you have to generate of your own efforts. You just need to read God's word, to share in worship, to call on him, to seek him, and this change is in your life and, and you are changed as you look to this rather than looking to your own strengths or to your own idolatries or diversions. Looking at... Um, the evangelical church broadly, not just us here today, um, the, the, the biblical evangelical church is very careful um, to avoid some of the idolatries that we see going on around us, even perhaps in some of the other churches that are maybe not following the Bible as much. And to that end, we try not to, um, we try not to get caught up in some of the hobby horses that some people get carried away with. You, know, you, know, you don't want to be caught up with a social justice agenda where you're just all focused on social justice and forgetting about God or thinking that you've got to do it for God because he's not doing it as quickly as you want or whatever. Or you know, um, there's other um, hobby horses people get carried away on, um, you know, whether it's environmentalism or um, w we evangelicals try very hard not to get trapped by that we try to stay true to the gospel what that tends to make us it tends to make us very aware of what it is to be righteous and so we try to be holy which is a good thing but sometimes while we're trying to be holy sometimes we forget to love so we need to try to be holy and we need to continue to try to be holy that's that's right but we need to not forget to love and to have a soft heart even for those who don't deserve it. And I'm not just talking about the poor. But, um, there's, I'm sure that each of us who know each other 
have something where we think the other person's not deserving or whatever. Uh, you don't have to look hard because we're all fallen sinners. None of us are perfect. But this is a God who loved us anyway and he calls us to love. You might know the verse in um, Matthew, Matthew 22, verse 37 to 39, um, where Christ says um, the most important uh, thing is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then the second most important law is that you must love your neighbour as yourself. Um, now, I think, and, and Christ says, every other law hangs off those two. So Christ understood the importance of love at the centre of, of our holiness, um, that we, if we are loving God, <coughs> flowing from that, we can love each other. And of course, that's within a righteous framework of holiness, God-fearing um, behaviour. But um, So be encouraged that you can be transformed by your faith and, uh, and that we can... Um, we can love each other, and even if you know that you're undeserving, that you've failed in whatever way you've failed, that God loves you, and that your wife or your husband or your family members, your church members, they can love you too, because none of us deserve to be loved by God, and yet God loves us. And he wants us to love each other and have soft hearts as we're transformed and held secure in his love. So that's the, that's the message I have for you today. So um, God bless and amen.